Well, one of the things that you'll notice as you make your way, and we make our way over the next few months, through God's story, one of the things that you'll notice is that the Bible is full of stories that you wouldn't make up, or you certainly wouldn't want to tell those stories unless you were convinced they were true, and you absolutely had to tell the story. You see, so many times in the stories of the Bible, the central figures are not living lives that are worth emulation. In fact, oftentimes in their life, there's absolutely no virtue to be found. You ever notice that? (laughs) You read, in fact, I've done some reading just this week, and I go, God, why would you put that story in the Bible? Like, that doesn't even make you look so good based on why did you even create this person? I've come to realize, though, that here's why. The Bible's purpose is not so much to show us how to live a good, exemplary life, but to show us how to meet a God whose grace we need in order to live a new life. That's the purpose of Scripture. It shows us how God comes down to a people who don't look for his grace or not looking for his grace. We don't deserve his grace, and yet he freely gives us that grace anyway. I want you to understand that that, that in a nutshell, that is the grand narrative of Scripture, that here is this God that in spite of who we are, in spite of who we've become, which is not who he initially created us to be, in spite of that, he lavishes his grace, his mercy upon us, those of us that don't deserve it. And that is the grand story, the grand narrative of Scripture. And I love that because it gives us the idea that no matter where you find yourself this morning, no matter what circumstances that you might find yourself in, God has a purpose, God has a plan for your life. And that's awesome. And I'm glad that God chose to write the Bible, his love letter to us in that way. Now, we uh, see this vividly portrayed in the life of the man that we're going to look at this morning. As we continue to make our way through uh, the threads of Scripture Uh, looking at God's story of redemption. We're going to spend the majority of our time together this morning in Genesis chapter 32. So if you want to take your Bible, if you have those, or on your phone or your iPad, and you want to get to Genesis chapter 32, that'd be a great place just to kind of have framed out there this morning, because that's where we'll spend the majority of our time. But what Jerry and I have come to understand the last several weeks as we've started into this series is that there are a number of you Uh, that don't understand some of the background of these stories. And so it can be kind of confusing if we just jump right in and assume that you know certain things that you may not know, all right? And so in order to give you a full picture, and that's what the purpose of this series is, to walk you through these grand stories in Scripture, uh, in this particular case, we got to go back a few chapters. So we're going to go back to chapter 25. We're going to pick it up there as we meet uh, a man named Jacob. You've often heard God referred to as the God of who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now you think if you hear him referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you make your way into that description of who God is, you got to think you're a pretty special guy, right? I mean, if, if, if we were the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Charlie, we would look at Charlie and go, wow, 
Like God specifically said, he's the God of Charlie. He must be an awesome guy. He must have done something to attain a certain level in God's eyes. The guy just looks at him and goes, I just want to be referred to as your God. And we're going to find out very quickly in Jacob's life that Jacob didn't earn that spot at all. In fact, as we pick it up in chapter 25 and verse 21, we read that Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah uh, they had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Verse 21 of chapter 25 says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. Any of you moms been pregnant with twins? You know what that is like, right? To have uh, twins struggle inside of you. I don't. I feel like I do some days, but I, uh, but I don't. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Why is this struggle going on inside of me? And obviously, she had not had ultrasounds, right? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Verse 23 says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Moms, just stop and think for a moment. You go to the doctor. You just think maybe you might be pregnant. They do the ultrasound, and they say to you, Good news, two nations are growing inside of you. And you feel like, well, that, that could be true based on how I feel. The Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Prophetic word. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. Like I thought all babies came out red, right? The ones that I've seen, that's the way they've looked. All his body like a hairy cloak. Wow. I mean, I don't know what that would have been like to be a new dad. You're in the delivery room. All of a sudden, this baby comes out. It's red. You're concerned because you're white, you're black, whatever. And the baby's red, if that's not bad enough. And then, Scripture says, his body's hairy like a cloak. Like he doesn't, you know, you've seen those guys at the pool, right? <laughs> Yeah, some of you are going, that's me, right? You're going, take the sweater off, all right? It's, you're supposed to go in. That's Esau. They called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. Remember that. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So Jacob comes out into the world, grabbing the heel of his twin brother, Esau, the older one. And as a result of that, their family named them Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob actually, in its etymological uh, form, refers to God's protection. But it's interesting because it sounds, in the original language, like heel grabber. In fact, the Bible says that's what Jacob was, and that's why they named him Jacob. It's because he was a heel grabber. And Jacob is going to spend most of his life, this man whom God describes as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this man Jacob is going to spend the vast majority of his life conniving, striving, manipulating others, trying to get ahead of them, cheating all along the way, and that's the way that he's going to live most of his life. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter. He's a man of the field. 
He's the one that uh, uh, Isaac would have taken out and said, uh, hey, you want to go hunting? And Jacob would have said, no, I'm going to stay here with mom and make Christmas cookies. And, uh, you know, I'm going to get out the Michael Buble Christmas uh, CD. And we're just going to kind of listen and, and I'm going to cook. And, and, and you and Esau go and have a great time, right? He was a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. He liked to hunt with him, and after they hunted and they, and they, and they made meals, Isaac liked him. Problem, end of verse 28, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what good is my birthright if I'm dead? Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. Now, I know it's early on a Sunday morning, and you might miss this, especially if you haven't heard this story before, but imagine what's taking place here. We don't have really anything in our culture quite like a birthright today. But we learn in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 21 and in 1 Chronicles 5 that it involved both material and spiritual blessing. The firstborn received twice as much property as each of the other sons, and more importantly, he became the head of the family and the spiritual leader of his people. And so in Jacob's case, the birthright also involved being in the line that was, that was to produce the Messiah. This was a big, big deal. And so Jacob uh, takes advantage of his brother's hunger, and he trades uh, him a bowl of stew uh, for his birthright. Here's what's really interesting is that God, based on what we read earlier in chapter 25, God had already predetermined that indeed Jacob was going to get the birthright. He was going to receive the blessing. But rather than letting God allow and work his plan in and through Jacob's life, Jacob decided that he'd take matters into his own hands to assure himself of getting what he wants. I want to stop there for just a moment and make sure that you don't miss that and miss the application that there is uh, for us today. There are many of us, in fact, as I've read and studied this week for hours and hours and hours, I've come to the conclusion that left to my own devices, I would be Jacob. I would be the person that would be looking just to get ahead and just to do what I needed to do, not totally trusting God that God had a plan, that God had a purpose, that God did indeed want to bless and use my life. I would do what I needed to do, and some of you are just like that as well. That's what Jacob did, not unlike so many of us. And if that's not bad enough, when we get to chapter 27, things actually get uh, just a little bit worse, and the story starts uh, playing out, Isaac is dying and he wants to bless his sons as the culture would dictate. His plan obviously is to bless his older son Esau. And so Rebekah said to her son Jacob, because she favored him, Jacob, while Esau is out there uh, trying to hunt game so that he can have a big feast for your dad and then your dad can bless him, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go over here into the pen where the animals are and uh, we'll kill one of the animals right now and you pretend that you're Esau so that you can get the blessing. 
Now, there are all kinds of parallels here, and if we had time, we would kind of take a little bit of a divergence here, and we would kind of go in and make an application about a mom and a dad who favor children and who keep secrets from one another. There's certainly that lesson to be learned here. Jacob doesn't even come up with the idea. Probably in Jacob's mind, he's thinking, hey, I already traded a bowl of stew for the birthright. I'm good. I mean, ultimately, I get it. He's promised that to me. But Rebecca tells him to lie. And so he goes in uh, to his dad. Three times Jacob lied to his blind, dying father because the father recognized his voice and said to him three times, are you Esau? And he said, yes, I am. And then he said, well, how did you, how did you get the game? How did you get the animal so quickly? How did you make this stew so quickly? <laughs> uh, the response is rather sobering. He said, the Lord provided it. The Lord provided it. Now, again, we're pressed for time. I get that. But how many times in your life do you find yourself doing exactly what you want to do, what you have manipulated and connived to do, to get your way, to get, to get circumstances just in a certain alignment so that you might get what you want, and then you say, look what God did. Do you ever do that? I have found myself in a number of situations, and because I, Jerry, Matt, we're professional Christians. You get that, right? I mean, like, we get paid to do this. We get paid to live this life and to do what we do, and it's pretty awesome. But I'll tell you what it creates. It creates hypocrisy. It creates Phariseeism if we're not careful. And so we can begin to frame everything as if God did something and God said something and God, and that's exactly what Jacob does here. How did you get the game so quickly? Jehovah Jireh, he provided. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of his deception, he blames God. And then the father asked one more time, are you really my son Esau? Because you have the voice of Jacob. Now we can only speculate as to what that means, Right? Maybe Esau, you know, had that really deep voice. And Jacob was kind of like, Dad, do you want some cupcakes? We just made some cupcakes. Mom and I just, and we know you like those. They got the white frosting on them with the little sprinkles. He goes, that sounds like, that sounds like Jacob. Are you really my son Esau? Because you have the voice of Jacob. But the hair on your arm, whoo, you're furry. And your brother is furry, so therefore, but you remember the story, he had put an animal skin on his arm so that he would appear uh, to be furry. He said, so that actually indicates that you are actually Esau. So the old man was deceived and he gave the blessing uh, to Jacob after three lies from his son Jacob. Jacob lied and he got the blessing. Now here's the thing about, uh, about Jacob. And you dads, you'll really appreciate this, especially if you have uh, little girls or even older girls. Uh, Jacob is the kind of guy that we dads are concerned about, right? I mean, I got to be honest with you. That's the kind of guy that I'm concerned about. We, we had a birthday party for Kayla on Friday night. And um, let's just say this was the first birthday party where there were people there that looked like me, Right? I mean, I'm looking at a birthday party and I said to Kayla, who's coming to the party? And I expected her to name her little friends that she has that I love and I think they're all awesome. And then all of a sudden she started naming male names. And I'm going, I'm not too sure I'm comfortable with that, right? 
I mean, you're going to be 15 years old. We've talked about maybe at age 30 we could have a birthday party like this, but, but not just yet. This, this is the kind of guy that if he, if he shows up at your daughter's birthday party, this is the kind of guy that you got your eye on him right from the beginning. Uh, and and l- let me be clear with any of you guys that were at my daughter's birthday party. I do have both eyes on you anyway, all right? That's the way it's going to be all the way up until she's 30 and I finally maybe walk her down the aisle. That's the way that it's going to be. But this guy lacks integrity. It's all over him. He's a schemer. He's a grabber. He's a manipulator. He lies to his own father. He takes advantage of every situation and of everybody around him. He does whatever it takes for him to get ahead. It doesn't matter who he uses or who he hurts. And as a result of this deception, Esau literally wants to kill his brother Jacob. Now, this isn't just some little sibling rivalry, right? You've had that in your house. Every once in a while when I was a youth pastor, I'd sit down with some parents and they'd say to me, no, really, I think they're going to kill one another. I'm going, ah, they're really going to kill one another? A couple times over a 20-year period of time, I thought, ah, those kids actually could kill one another. But for the most part... That just meant they were kind of fighting, right? They're kind of bickering uh, back and forth. That wasn't the case here. Esau literally wants to kill his brother Jacob. And so Jacob, being the planner, being the schemer, being the deceiver that he was, he decides it might be best to leave town. And so he goes to live with his mom's brother, Uncle Laban. And when he meets Laban, and I really would encourage you to go back and read between the lines of these stories because there's so much more that's here. When he meets Laban, he finally meets his match. And in chapter 29, Jacob sees Laban's youngest daughter. Her name is Rachel. And uh, let's just say it's love at first sight. Read with me in chapter 29, verse 9. It says, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, kind of interesting to me, Jacob being the guy that likes to be in the kitchen with mom, and all of a sudden now, here's Rachel. I mean, she's the real deal, right? She's a farm girl. She's, she's not a shepherd. She's a shepherdess. She's got the animals out there, and if you read in the verses prior to that, um, he's asking around, making sure he's in the right place, and so As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now, here's what's interesting. Jacob didn't give a rip about those sheep, right? You understand that. He didn't go, I bet those sheep are, I bet those sheep really need water. Let me move that stone away from the well so that the sheep, no, no. He's all about one thing. We know what it is, don't we, guys? He's noticed Rachel. Look at verse 11. The guy's rather forward. We have to look at this within culture. Verse 11 says, then Jacob kissed Rachel and he wept aloud. Right? That's why we know he's that guy that's in the kitchen. He's not the guy that's out in the field. He kisses her and he starts weeping. We can only imagine what that looked like and what she thought. Remember, she's a shepherdess, right? She's not sitting in the, uh, in the uh, what do you call it? Where do you get your nails done? In the salon, she's not sitting there getting her nails done and her toenails done. I mean, she's a shepherdess. She's out there with the sheep and all of a sudden this guy comes up. He kisses her and he's weeping out loud. Jacob goes and he lives with Laban for about a month. And after about a month, Laban tells Jacob, I I don't really think it's fair for me to expect that you would work here for free. I think you need to be paid for your labor. 
And so Jacob makes an offer to work for Laban for seven years in exchange for his youngest daughter, Rachel. Now, I find that very fascinating, very interesting. I wish we had time to park here and just cover this little area right here because it is pretty fascinating. He doesn't negotiate with Laban at all. He says, I'll work seven years for your youngest daughter. Now, men, married men who are here this morning, think, think just for a moment, would that woman that's sitting next to you, would you have been willing to work seven hard years for that woman? This is the moment, guys. Put your arm around her. Say, I would have worked triple that amount. Come on, come on, do it. All right. Some of you aren't doing it. That's making me really nervous. You're going, maybe seven months, definitely not seven years. He works for her for seven years. Seven years. We know that Jacob obviously was attracted to this woman. There's no negotiation at all that takes place. He finds something, he wants it, he begins to, to develop a plan of how he's gonna get that. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll work for you for seven years, won't cost you anything, just give me this woman when I'm done. And so Jacob works for Laban for seven years and then Laban tricks Jacob and gives him Leah instead of Rachel. It's very very interesting part of the story. Laban decides that he doesn't want to give up his youngest beautiful daughter, and so he gives Jacob Leah. So Jacob works for seven years, and he thinks, I'm going to get Rachel, and instead he gets Leah. Now, I can only speculate because basically the text says, the narrative there in Scripture says that when he woke up the next morning, meaning when they had had their first night together sexually. He woke up the next morning. You can imagine it, right? They're laying there and he turns over and goes, ah! <laughs> literally, that's what happens, all right? I'm telling you, if you read it in the original language, this is what it says, right? I hope none of you have had that experience. I know some of you women had to have had that experience looking at your husbands, all right? But that's what happened. He literally turned over and went, what in the world have I done? But in their culture, deal is done. She's your wife. Can you imagine the conversation that he had with his father-in-law? You know, I wanted the one, not the one with the weak eyes, because I got good eyes, <laughs> and I'm going to be looking at her. I didn't want that one. I wanted Rachel, the young one, the one that was beautiful in form, the one that had a pretty face. And so Laban says to him, and this is so ironic, and again, as you see the story woven through Scripture and this whole theme of be sure your sin will find you out. You get what you plant. You may get it in a different season, but whatever, whatever you plant is what you eventually get. Laban says to him, as if he knows every little detail of Jacob's life, Laban says to him, well, in our culture, the oldest goes first. What irony. Here's Jacob who has been scheming, who has stolen the birthright, he's done all this. He's got a brother that hates him, that wants to kill him. Now he's gone and he's worked for seven years. You made a deal with me. This is the way that it should be. And Laban says, hey, in our culture, in other words, touche, my friend, that's what happens. So he agrees to work for more time, and he does, it's a sad commentary on the depravity of men, both Laban and Jacob. 
Both of them are cheaters. They mutually cheat and take advantage of others and of one another and other people. Laban keeps changing the wages of Jacob. And Jacob, if you read the story and it's fascinating, Jacob keeps breeding cattle in such a way that he gets the benefit and on and on it goes until after 20 years, they can't take it any longer. He's cheated his father, Laban, and Laban has cheated and deceived him as well. He's married to Laban's two daughters. And so it's difficult living with the in-laws and finally, Jacob decides to leave, and he decides to go back to his homeland. And on the way back to his homeland, he hears a rumor that Esau is coming with 400 men, and Jacob is terrified. He reasons that, that only Esau would be coming toward him. The only reason he'd be coming toward him is to slaughter him and his family. After all, he had sworn to do that. He had sworn to kill Jacob. And that brings us to chapter 32. Jacob is scared. And you know, that's the way that life is when you lie, when you cheat, when you steal. When you make your way through life like that, when you take advantage of enough people, you better watch your back. It's interesting to note that in preparation for the eventual meeting with his older brother Esau, he does two things. Number one, he prays. I find that fascinating. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that we have a tendency to pray similar kinds of prayer when we're in trouble? It doesn't really matter what kind of condition we're in spiritually. Uh, when all of a sudden we find ourselves in a difficult position, we have a tendency to cry out to God and to pray. Whenever we find ourselves in a tough spot, we pray. He prays. Number two, he also sends gifts ahead of him. It's the manipulator. It's the deceiver. It's the charmer. It's the conniver. Now he sends gifts ahead of him thinking, if I send gifts to my brother Esau, maybe he will, maybe his anger will back off just a little bit. And so he sends camels, milking camels, all right? Any of you ever seen a milking camel? They're pretty awesome. I'd love to have one. He sends milking camels, he sends bulls, calves, donkeys, and all of this according to verse 20 of chapter 32, so that I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. In fact, in verses 22 and 23, it says that he even sends his wife and his kids ahead. He sends everything he owns ahead of him, and he sends them kind of staggered, thinking, well, if the, if the first group gets there and they're all slaughtered, at least there'll be a second group. And if the second group is slaughtered, at least there'll be a third group. And then the coward that he is, he's behind and he's all alone. And that brings us to our text in verse 24. It took us all that time to get to our text. We read one of the most interesting and somewhat confusing story in all of scripture. And this is what I want to read to you. And I want to make five applications and we'll be done. Genesis chapter 32, verse 24 says, and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he had wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel for you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, please tell me what's your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the, the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. 
Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel don't even eat the sinew, which is kind of the, the, the tendon, the main tendon of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, some Bible scholars, this is a fascinating passage. Some Bible scholars believe that this is where Jacob truly becomes a follower of God. Uh, there are others that believe that up until this time, he simply went through the motions of following God, but it's at this moment that he, that he really becomes a true follower of God. And still others say that he followed God before this time, but he was undisciplined, <laughs> understatement, right? And disobedient, understatement. But in either case, this event was a life-changing moment for Jacob. Now, here's what I want to ask you as we begin to, uh, to descend for our landing, all right? Here's what I want to ask you. Have you ever had a true life-changing encounter with God? I mean a true life-changing encounter with God. Where you came to the point where you realized that he is who he says that he is. He can do what he says he can do. What he says about you and I is true. And it demands a response from us. Have you ever come to that place in your life? I want to give you five things that happen when we truly have a life-changing encounter with God, all right? Five things. There's probably 105 things that I could give you, but for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to give you five. And they're really, really pretty simple except for one, and, and hopefully I'll have a little bit of time to explain. But I want to give you five things that happen when we have a life-changing encounter with God. Number one is we meet God personally. We meet God personally. You'll notice we look back in verse 24 that, that, that Jacob is all alone. You know, for most of us, if life change is going to happen, it's going to come when we are all alone. When we have nothing to think about except for our own life, our own situation, our own circumstances, it's going to come in a place when we're all alone. Most often it's then when God chooses to do the work he wants to do in our hearts. And this is what happens with Jacob. He is scared. He fears the confrontation with his brother Esau as well he should. It is as if he finally may realize that he has been a manipulator, a cheater, a conniver, that he's made his way through life doing these things, and he thinks it just might be catching up with me. When he has nothing to think about except for his own circumstances, it's in that particular moment when he's all alone. And I want to suggest to you that it is that those moments when we have life-changing encounters with God, when we meet with God personally. You see, it's possible to listen to other people's encounters with God and to assume that that is your encounter. It's possible to have vicarious encounters with God. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, it's possible for you to come in here on a Sunday morning and to watch what's happening up here on a stage, to look at the people around you, to hear a story on a screen, to hear a sermon preached, 
and vicariously to think, wow, what a, what, a, what a great experience that is with God. And to go out and to think, to understand fully, to be convinced that that's your experience when it's not your experience. All it is is just an emotion that you feel at the moment. I'm convinced there are many people that sit in churches all across America this morning and all they've had is a religious experience with God. They've had an emotional encounter, but they never have personally come to grips with who, are, who they are in light of who God is. And they've never come face to face with what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to think for just a moment, because I myself, I'm convinced that's where Jacob had been. Jacob had been a man that had prayed he kind of understood what was going on with the, with the whole birthright thing and what that meant and what God was going to do through his family and who this God was. He knew a lot of things about God, but it wasn't up until this moment where he met God personally. When you have a life-changing encounter with God, it involves you meeting with him personally. You have to meet God yourself. Number two, it also means that we meet him in our weakness. There's no other place in the Bible that shows this more vividly than we see right here in this story with Jacob wrestling with God. This story shows us that we indeed do not have a tame God. <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. This is the first time we actually see Jacob doing some things that appear to be right things, right? I mean, he's praying, God's told him to go back to his homeland in chapter 31, and he's going back to his homeland. He's obeying, he's, he's praying. Don't you think God should respond favorably towards him? In fact, isn't that kind of in our culture, kind of the way we think it should be? I behave this way. I do these things. As a result, somehow, I gain favor with God. And God, is in, it, it, God, God requires, based on what we think of him and who he is, that he blesses me, that he makes my life comfortable, that he makes my life easy. He's scared. He's desperate. You think exactly where God wants him to be. And so you assume God's going to respond how? Oh, Jacob, I'm so sorry you find yourself in these circumstances. And finally, you've come to understand what a loving, kind, gentle God I really am. So good to see you, my son. <laughs> That's not what God does at all. Look back at the text. God wrestles with him and kind of toys with him for a while. And then if you read, and I wish you could all read it in the Hebrew, when you read it in the Hebrew, it says he touched his hip socket. It doesn't mean he did what you and I would do. Like we'd probably found a log or something, you know, a branch, and would have gone wham and knocked his, his, uh, his hip. No, literally, the God of the universe just simply taps him. That's what the Hebrew word means. It just means he taps him. He just gently touches him. But as a result of that, he cripples him for life. You think, mean God. What a mean God. This is definitely not the God of liberal religion, is it? That view says that God simply loves everybody. And that if we pray enough, if we do enough right things, if we go to church, if we read our Bible, he's going to do what? He's going to knock you down and he's going to cripple you, right? No, liberal religion says he'll just bless you. He'll just be so happy with you because you're kind of working your way into his favor. 
Tim Keller says, this is not a God of anybody's religion. This is not a God of anybody's imagination. Why is this text here? He says, it must have happened. Who would have thought this up? <laughs> and then I love this. I've, I've determined, I love listening to Tim Keller preach, and I've determined one of his favorite words is idiot. He says, what kind of an idiot would think of a God like this? C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of the Narnia, where they're talking about the Christ figure, asked the question, safe? Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's the God that we find. And so God wrestles with him into a transformed life rather than comforting him into a transformed life. And Jacob's turning point comes when the man, when God touches him and he's in incredible pain. It's at that moment that Jacob realizes that this is God. And when he realizes that this is God, he will not let him go. He grabs on to him. He finally wants God in his life. He realizes that, that this is exactly what he's been missing. He thought he needed a birthright. He thought he needed a blessing. He thought he needed all these things. But, but exactly at the moment of weakness, verse 26, he understands who this is and why this is happening to him. And so in his pain, he keeps grasping on to this man, to God who he's wrestling with. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in prosperity, but he shouts to us in adversity. There are some of you that right now, you're going through incredibly difficult moments in your life. Let God shout to you through your adversity because it is during those times when God is molding you and shaping you into the person that he wants you to be. Number three, when we have a life-changing encounter with God, we meet him at the center of our lives. I've got to hurry. My time's running out, but, but this is so important for you to understand. Um, Jacob would have said that the major problem in his life was Esau. <laughs> if he could just get rid of Esau, Esau had caused all kinds of problems from the time they were in the womb of their mother. He then he got the birthright. He had his father's favor. Um, he had the leadership in the family. He's the one who stood in his way, Jacob would have said, to get everything that he wanted that would make him happy. And finally, Jacob comes to the realization that it's really not Jacob at all. It's really the issue that he'd had with God. Because God didn't have the rightful position in his life. Let me say to you this morning that all of us were created to have God at the center of our lives. It's been said and, and so true that we were all created with a God-shaped hole right in the center of our heart. And we do so many things to try to fill that void. Whether it's a career, whether it's a house, a boat, a retirement account, relationships, a, a, a wife, a husband, whatever it might be. We take all those things and we try to poke them in there thinking if we, if we just get that thing there, suddenly we'll have purpose and meaning in our lives. Only to achieve that and find that we're still not happy. This was certainly true of Jacob and got to the point where God made it very clear to him that God was not going to be an add-on in his life, that God wanted to be the center of his life. And number four, and you might find this somewhat confusing, but we meet God, if we have a life-changing encounter with him, we meet him also in his weakness. Now, when you hear that, as the worship team did this morning, you think, weakness? Weakness? God is not weak. God is strong. You're, you're, you're correct. Verse 25, so though, says, and when the man saw that he could not overpower him, what? 
This is God. God's the man. In absolute terms now, God does have the power, right? He's going to demonstrate that how? With that little touch. In absolute terms, he does have the power, but God made himself weak intentionally. Now follow me, because remember, we're following the threads through Scripture, right? You see, God was after a changed heart. And because he lost, he actually won. God chooses to make himself weak. Dad, you'll relate to this. I have two sons. When they were little boys, they wanted to wrestle, right? Um, when, when little boys want to wrestle, and, and you're my size, and your little boy is about 30 pounds, right? It's not really a wrestling match, right? If we really want to use our full strength, we just smack him down. He's laying there all bloody, you know. This is what happens, right? And you say, learn to be a man. I want you to be Esau, not Jacob. That's what we do, right? But no, when dads are wrestling, loving fathers, when they wrestle with their children, what do they do? They hold back their strength. They wrestle laying flat on their back with one arm as both kids are, are, and, and they allow themselves to be weak, right? In order that those little boys might appear to be strong. This story, I believe, points to Calvary where God would win, though it appears he had lost. Isn't that really cool? On the cross, Jesus wrestled with the full ended, but he held on and he wouldn't let go until we received the blessing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, weak, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was taking the curse of the justice so that we could get the blow that only wakes us up. So God blesses someone who deserves a curse because he curses someone who deserves a blessing. Only when two says, let each one of you look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, even death on a cross. And so here's what God does. God brings this scandalous grace that we've talked about over the last several weeks. He brings it into the lives of people like Jacob and like you and like me who don't deserve it. And when God works, he works through grace alone. Now, finally, and I know I'm way out of time. This is really the cool part. When we have a personal, life-changing encounter with God, we get a new name. Isn't that awesome? We get a new name. Verse 27 of chapter 32 says, And he said to him, What is your name? Jacob finally admits I'm a heel grabber, I'm a schemer, I'm a conniver, I'm a manipulator. This is what I've done all my life. God says in verse 28, your name shall no longer be called cheater, heel grabber, conniver, manipulator. Your name is gonna be Israel. Meaning he prevails with God. For you have striven with God and with men, and you've prevailed. 
You know, one, one day Jesus said that to Simon Peter. He said, Simon, you are Simon, but you're going to be called Peter the Rock. I'm going to rename you. And that same God did exactly that with Jacob. And here's a really cool thing. That's exactly what happens when we have a personal, life-changing encounter with God. That's what happens with you, and that's what happens with me. It's the difference between who we are and who God sees us as being. God has the ability to know what he wants in our lives and knows that we can be renamed, not because of our birth certificates, but in God's mind, we can be somebody different than we are today. Isn't that awesome? Because I don't know about you, but there are days when I don't like who I am because I know who I am. Some of you think you know who I am. You don't know who I am. I don't really know who you are. The only ones that re- only one who really knows who you are is God. Second would be you. And the great news of the gospel, when we have a life-changing encounter with God, is that we get a new name, a new identity. Your name right now may be guilty. God says, I'm going to give you a new name, forgiven. Your name right now, I don't know, but it might be immoral. And God says, that's not who I created you to be. I'm going to give you a new name. Your name is clean. Your name today might be failure. You might look at your life and you may be 40, 45, 50 years old and go, everything that I ever wanted, nothing has happened like I thought. I've been a failure in my life. I've been a failure in my family. I've been a failure with my mar- in my marriage, with my kids, in my workplace, whatever. God says your name is no longer going to be, f- be failure. I've given you divine purpose. Some of you are here and you struggle with addiction. And you think that's who you are, and that defines you. And when you have a life-changing encounter with God, God says, your name is no longer going to be addiction. I'm going to rename it satisfied. Satisfied because you'll find your satisfaction in me, in me alone. Some of you are worriers. That's your name. That's the banner over you. I worry. I worry about everything. And if I didn't have anything to worry about, I'd worry that I didn't have anything to worry about. That's you. Your name is marked by worry. And God says, I'm going to give you a new name. When you have a life-changing encounter with me, your name is going to be peace. Some of you, your name is, is rejected. You've been rejected by a family. You've been rejected by a spouse. You've been rejected by people in general, and God says, that's not who you are. That's not what your name is. In me, your new name is accepted. Lastly, you may be here this morning, and you may be very, very discouraged because of the circumstances in your life. And things aren't exactly the way that you would have wanted them to be or that you intended them to be. And your life is marked by discouragement. And I believe this morning God is saying to you, I'm going to change your name. You are blessed. Why? Because these temporary circumstances, that's not your final destiny. Your final destiny is to be with me. I created you to be in relationship with me and ultimately to spend all of eternity with me. No longer will you be discouraged. I will call you blessed. That's what God does. Isn't that great? God changes and he transforms lives. And when we admit who we are, he gives us a new name.
and he transforms us into somebody different. That's why he uses people like Jacob. I wouldn't have done that. I would have written him out completely. I would have said Abraham, Isaac, and name the name, but not Jacob. Yet God said, no, I'm going to transform. I'm going to change his life. He's going to have a life-changing encounter with me. That's what happens when you have that life-changing encounter. My challenge to you is ask yourself today, have I really had an encounter with God like that? Let's pray. God, I, I recognize I've gone over, spent more time than I was supposed to. But I think these things are so important for us to understand. So many of us that are sitting here right now, I know that there are people that are discouraged, that feel as if they have failed. They feel rejected, they feel guilty, they feel immoral, they worry, they're addicted. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that that is why you sent your son Jesus to this earth. We might get a new name, that our lives might be transformed. God, don't let people that are wearing that name walk out of here this morning without contemplating what it would mean to place their trust in Christ alone as their Savior, and to be given a new name, a new identity in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.